square fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome, friends, to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This is your host, Steve Fielder. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. A couple of episodes back, I did an experiment with an audible format in which I read a chapter or essay from my book, Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. I'd gotten several requests from folks that uh, ask about the book being in audible format uh, or an ebook. And uh, so I, I performed uh, a little test by reading an essay from the book. And quite uh, frankly, the response was very good. So in keeping with that, I've decided since the hunting seasons are winding down, uh, it's that time of year when maybe you reach for familiar pages of a favorite book, maybe a new volume that you've purchased, or maybe you just prefer to listen to the reading of a book while you're on your way to the woods or to work or whatever. So this week, I'm going to once again read an essay from my book titled Harvest of Memories. In more than 40 years of writing articles for coon hunting magazines, it's always tempting at this time of year to talk about the crisp, cool nights, the falling leaves, cornstalks rustling in the breeze under a big old orange harvest moon and a favorite hound stretched high on a giant oak with two blazing eyes looking down. We all can easily see ourselves in that scene and unashamedly agree that it's where we most want to be. This is indeed the harvest time, our time. We've endured the chill winds of winter and summer scorching heat to reach our time once again. It's the easy, comfortable, satisfying time of harvest. This is our comfort zone where everything feels as right as wiggling our toes into a warm pair of slippers on a cold morning floor. After many years of work and travel, I'm now in the autumn of life with time to relish the memories of this sport that seem to go together with my leisurely days like home can preserved preserves on a buttermilk biscuit. Indeed, I'm enjoying my harvest of memories now that I have time to do so and will share some favorites with you this month should you have the time to turn a page or two with me. The Musky Smell of Mules Frank G. Clement was twice governor of the state of Tennessee, serving from 1953 to 1959, and again from 1963 to 1967. He was killed in an automobile accident in November of 1969, the year I entered the Air Force. My dad and Frank were boyhood friends, both attending Dixon Central High School in Dixon, Tennessee, 
and both serving in the military in World War II. My dad from 1939 to 1945, and Frank from 1943 to 1946, the year I was born. I vividly recall while on a visit from our home in West Virginia to my grandparents' farm in rural Dixon County, Tennessee, going on a coon hunt with Governor Clement and his son Bob, who would later become a U.S. congressman from Tennessee, serving from 1987 to 2003. I mentioned this hunt in the April issue of The American Cooner. Frank's most notable achievements as governor were to create a free school textbook program and to veto a pro-segregation bill. Bob was three years older than I. I believe this was slightly before Governor Clement took office, since my grandfather, for whom I was named, died in 1952 and was alive when we took this hunt. I must have been around five years old at the time, having been born in 1946. As if to symbolize Democrat Governor Clement's political preference, our coon hunting vehicles were a pair of Grandpa Fielder's draft mules named Pat and Trim, with Frank and Bob on one of the mules and Dad and me on the other. Our saddles were feed sacks thrown over the mules' backs, and our coon hound was my granddad's cur dog named Kurt. The hunting territory consisted of the farm's river bottom along Piney River, a 23-mile-long stream which heads in Dixon County and flows southeastward into the Duck River, which in turn flows into the Tennessee River and ultimately Ohio. Our illumination consisted of a pair of kerosene lanterns and a two-cell flashlight recharged by heating the batteries on my grandmother's wood stove in the living room of her modest Tennessee home. I recall the musky smell of the mules setting aside old Pat in front of my dad, snuggled tight against him as the evening chill set in, and listening to Kurt's tree bark as it bounced off the river bluff and echoed up and down the bottom. I spent eight days this summer on that river, fishing the deep holes along its bluffs, and despite 100-degree weather, recalled the chill of that November evening some 60 years ago, as if it were yesterday. The Rumble of Men's Voices Licensed night hunts were slow in coming to the southern West Virginia coal fields where I was raised, but there was no shortage of coon hunters. In the late 1940s, they formed a coon hunters club that met at the United Mine Workers of America Union Hall in the community of Staniford, just outside Beckley, where we lived. I was probably in the second grade, so the year would be around 1953 or 1954, when Dad took me to my first Coon Club meeting. 
I could hear the rumble of men's voices as we approached the door to enter the smoke-filled great room of the coal miners' union hall. The room was lit dimly by a series of bare, candescent light bulbs dangling from braided cords spaced along the length of the cinder block building's tin work ceiling. The room, although heated by a wood stove at front center, appeared to me to be damp, cold, and uninviting. The voices grew quiet as every eye turned to watch a short-statured, wiry man with a head of thick, dark hair accompanied by a gangly, freckle-faced kid find their places at a table near the back of the room. Attending the monthly meeting of the local coon hunters club that winter night would be my first experience with coon hunters and their activities outside the small circle of my dad's closest friends. Shortly thereafter, on a sunny Saturday morning, I attended my first coonhound field trial. When I later began to write histories of the sport for the UKC publications, I would learn that hunters in the upper Midwest referred to these events as crap sack races, whereby coon feces were placed in a burlap sack, dipped in the creek, and drugged through the woods to create the line for the field trial dogs to run. As I worked the field trials for my club in my early years and attended the events of neighboring clubs, I don't recall anyone using this method or the term. Coon trailing scent was ordered from Holm in Tennessee or Boatman in Ohio and placed on a canvas drag, also ordered from the coon hunting supply houses, to create the trail. Dad and I were standing atop the hill where the home tree was located that morning and watched the dogs, ranging in variety from great coonhounds belonging to local hunters, to the fleet-footed greyhounds of the field trialers from Ohio, come into sight at the top of the hill and dash through the line stakes as they neared the tree. The roar of their frantic barking subsided as men collared them and drugged the lunging and panting hounds out of the way of the next heat. As their barking subsided, I could hear the melodic balls of trailing hounds in the distance. Topping the hill and coming into view was a pair of long-eared black and tans, appearing to be in slow motion as they meticulously worked the artificial trail into the tree. When I wrote the histories for the black and tan breed for our publications, I learned that these magnificent old dogs the famed Old Glory Hounds from the Darby Plains of Pioneer, Ohio, were commonly called skylookers for their propensity to stop, point their muzzles to the sky, and bark as the scent filled their nostrils. While the crowd laughed at their tardiness, I marveled at their shiny black coats, the depth of their strong voices, and their determination to finish the job, even though others had come much sooner and were now long removed from the trail's end at the home tree. Horse Farms, Lost Dogs, 
and interstates. My father, having hunted curs as a young man in Tennessee, became interested in the plot breed in about 1943 while serving, as was virtually every young man in the nation at the time, in the Army. He was in Washington State waiting to be shipped to the South Pacific when he saw an article by Carlos Vinson in Field and Stream or Outdoor Life magazines about the brindle bear dogs of North Carolina. After marrying a West Virginia girl at the close of the war, moving to southern West Virginia and becoming interested in bear hunting, he traded a twenty-two rifle for a plot female in 1954 and began a journey with the breed that would last 54 years. Subsequently, he joined the National Plot Hound Association in its inaugural year and began making annual trips to plot days. It was one of these trips this one to the Bluegrass Coon Hunters Club in Georgetown, Kentucky, that I hunted in my first licensed night hunt. I recall drawing out with a trim little treeing walker female named Deep River Linda, and I suspect, although I have no way of knowing for sure, that she was out of ACHA world champion Deep River Mike, who won his title in 1960. He was owned by Jesse Lutz, Jr., who was serving as president of the Bluegrass Coon Hunters Club at the time Plot Days was held there. I also drew out with a gentleman that was somewhat older than I, hunting a red-boned male. Our guide took us to one of the area's famous thoroughbred horse properties, the 1,300-acre Pin Oak Farm, in Woodford County, near Versailles. The farm had been established by Houston oil man Jim Abercrombie in 1949. It was a classical, board-fenced, bluegrass horse operation in those days. The original property now belongs to the University of Kentucky. For a young man accustomed to hunting the strip mines and hollows of southern West Virginia, cutting my hound loose on that horse farm was like hunting on the White House lawn. I was hunting a strong-bodied, brindle-plot male named Hoss. Remembered fondly as the hound that made a coon hunter out of me, he would have been about three years old at the time, having been born in March of 1962. We were treeing coons right and left. I can still hear the high-pitched chop of the Linda bitch joining the deep, resonant bass of my plot as they sang hound music duets down the small branches and across the rolling pastures, coming treed on magnificent oaks along the boarded fence rows. The red bone wasn't doing much, and the handler wasn't at all pleasant about it, but I was having the time of my life until I heard Hoss trail across an expanse of pasture toward the distant whining of semi-truck tires on Interstate 64. 
My heart jumped in my throat. As we attempted to follow my dog, the roar of the still-distant highway smothered his barks. I was persuaded by the guide that he wouldn't be that far away. We looked for him until the hunt time was over and then looked some more. There was nothing to do but to return to the clubhouse, dejected and visibly upset with the prospect of telling my dad I had lost our dog. The story had a happy ending, although it was two excruciatingly long weeks in coming. Dad had gone back with the guide to the hunting spot and expanding the search found Hoss's tracks and those of a coon entering and exiting a culvert that spanned the four lanes of Interstate 64. Exhausting every minute of available time to search, there was simply no dog to be found. Needing to return to work and school the following Monday, our trip home from plot days on Sunday was one gloomy affair. Having given up on finding our dog after two long weeks, we were elated to receive a letter from a farmer named Pete Markwell saying he had our dog. Obviously, we were overcome with joy at the story's happy ending. I'll never forget the bittersweet thrill of an exciting hunt on a farm of my dreams and the agony of driving home to West Virginia without my dog. Hippies, Snowballs, and Maple Syrup With the 35th running of the UKC World Championship in Louisiana safely tucked away in the annals of coon hunting history, I'm reminded of my first assignment as a UKC field representative on a cold and snowy March evening in 1978. I was named Master of Hounds for the regional qualifying event in Jeffersonville, New York, some 600 miles distant from my West Virginia home. The event would lead up to the inaugural UKC World Hunt to be held the following September in Beaver Dam, Ohio. The club to which I was assigned was in the Sullivan County hamlet of Jeffersonville, population 359. Jeffersonville, in New York's famed Catskills region, lies a mere 15 minutes from the site of Woodstock, the quintessential hippie gathering of the ages held on Max Yasger's dairy farm in August of 1969. Woodstock completed its three days of drug-induced rock music and mayhem just three days before I was sworn into Uncle Sam's Air Force and boarded a plane for San Antonio, Texas for basic training. I did not attend the concert, but one of the members of my basic training flight did. While Crosby, Stills, and Nash may have encountered crowds a half million strong on their visit to the region, I was satisfied with the 20 or 30 coon hunters I found gathered on the grounds of the Sullivan County Coon Hunters Club as I arrived at noon with the bench show already in progress. I'm certain 
The remnants of purple haze and hot tuna still lingered in the brisk Catskill mountain air that afternoon, nine years after the Woodstock experience. There were no world-qualifying bench shows in those days. They would follow in 1985 with the inaugural show to be held in Columbia City, Indiana of that year. But I digress. After the show, as I began my preparations for the evening's hunt, my first of many over the three years that I served as a field representative, storm clouds began to gather over the mountain ridges with a promise of plunging temperatures and plenty of white stuff on the ground by morning's light. I had anticipated meeting local legend Robert Pappy Torrance on my trip, and I was not disappointed when he strode up to me with a grin and a woodcutter's handshake that left my hand tingling to the bone. Pappy, with his long white beard and mane of snowy hair, had been making an impression on the boys at the Tournament of Champions events with a black-and-white walker female named Belle Angel. Everyone liked Pappy, and I immediately realized why. He looked for the world like the famed bringer of gifts from the North Pole. I met others on that visit to southeastern New York that would impact me in various ways. Being from the South, I'll confess I subscribed in those days to the idea that so-called Yankees aren't friendly and that they, like those of us on the lower side of the Mason-Dixon, were still fighting the Civil War. What I found instead was a group of warm and generous hunters that loved their hounds and hunting as much as I did, even though they spoke in a foreign tongue. It was there that I met what would become a longtime friend and fellow prop fancier in Bill Frenette from Dighton, Massachusetts. Bill would later work with me as field rep when I took over the reins of the Field Operations Division at UKC. I would also meet that night a robust young hunter that would win first in the night hunt, but it would unfortunately be his last appearance in the winter circle. He would take a terrible fall from a tree while coon hunting and be permanently assigned to a wheelchair shortly after the Jeffersonville event. His name was Carl Klein, and I've often thought of the strapping young man that walked up briskly to accept the first-place plaque in the wee hours of that snowy March morning. His accident prompted me over the years to admonish coon hunters to never climb trees. One of the things I will never forget about my first RQE was the wonderful hospitality of the club members there. While the casts were out, I was asked if I had ever experienced real maple syrup. I confess that the only syrup I had tried came from Aunt Jemima or from a log cabin. One of the hunters left the club to return sometime later with a bucket of fresh-drawn sap from a nearby farmer's maple trees. The sap was poured into pots and pans and boiled into syrup on the club stove just so I could experience the amazing flavor of real honest-to-goodness maple syrup. 
To this day, when I pour the contents of a bottle of artificially colored sugar water on my egos, I miss the rich, delicious flavor of that Sullivan County Coon Club maple syrup. The club president, Bob Lounsbury, graciously offered his sofa and a warm blanket to an exhausted master of hounds as we reached his home in the gray light of dawn. I would sleep a few hours before driving to join my wife and our Air Force friends, the Applers, at their home in Norwich, where she was staying the night. She was carrying our son Chris, who would be born in November of that year. In many ways, this was one of the most memorable nuggets from my harvest of memories. Friends, I hope you enjoyed the reading uh, from the book, Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. That was an essay titled Harvest of Memories. The book is still available. Uh, The uh, website is stevefielderbooks.com. And I also have a few of the Gone to the Dogs uh, trucker-style hats in either black or green. And they are available on the website as well. Well, in continuing our podcast today, I thought it would be kind of a hoot to go back and uh, see what coon hunting was like nearly 50 years ago. Uh, As you know, I'm older than dirt, and uh, I've been around this game for a long time. Having been born in 1946 and started at a very young age with my dad, but uh, through um, a collection here of old magazines, coon hunting magazines, and, and you know, we, we think of them as being um, the older ones, American Cooner, Full Cry. Uh, Mountain Music was the predecessor to American Cooner. And then, of course, Coonhound Bloodlines came along, and then after that, Prohound. So... Um, Coon hunting news in the printed page has been around for quite a long time. But what I thought it would be fun since it's nearing on 50 years ago to kind of browse through the pages of a 1974 uh, edition or issue of American Cooner magazine and uh, just kind of browse what's in the magazine, take a look at the ads, uh, take a look at some of the prices, the dogs that were being advertised at stud at the time, and just kind of take a little journey back about 50 years. So if you're with me, uh, we'll go ahead and start. Uh, American Cooner, uh, for many, many years, featured a red cover, and uh, there was always a photo on the cover a black and white photo, of course, and uh, the logo, the words American Cooner, the National Treehound Magazine, and there was an artist's rendering of a tree and walker hound, a white hound appeared with uh, black spots, and there was a raccoon on the cover. And uh, the magazine was... Uh, at the bottom of it, it said the voice of the American coon hunter. And this particular issue uh, was June of 1974. 
And it lists the price of a single issue at that time as being 50 cents an issue. (laughs) So that's changed a little bit, although really even at today's prices, the magazine is is a real steal at about three bucks an issue. But as I open the pages of American Cooner, uh, typically the first thing you found there uh, were the ads, and uh, then there was a directory of contents. Um, actually, um, there were in the masthead there for American Cooner, it also lists that Mountain Music was founded in 1928 and merged with the American Cooner in December of 1962. And then you get the directory of contents with the all of everything pretty much lumped together uh, as far as the editorial, the columns, breed columns, news from the, the various areas of the country. And in the back of the magazine is the advertiser's index, and it was separated out of, between dogs for sale, at stud and puppies, feeds, supplies, and miscellaneous, and then coonhound events. Now, it's interesting to note that back in those days, there was a requirement by the UKC registry that in order to have a UKC licensed event, you had to advertise it in one of three Coonhound magazines in the issue that came out the month before the event. There were no um, unabridged event listings in the magazine like you'd find now or uh, more than likely you get that information online today. But back in those days, if you uh, the club wanted to have, let's say, a July event, then they had to advertise it in the June issue of the magazine. And typically these ads would be a quarter page uh, listing the club's name, uh, the deadline times, and the entry fees. And that was one of my uh, projects when I went to uh, UKC was to convince Fred Miller that we could list all these events in our magazine and Coon Hunters would have a place to go one source to go to, and that would increase the subscriptions for the magazine. And it wasn't an easy uh, accomplishment because Fred thought that uh, more readers, and he was right, more readers were reading American Cooner and Full Cry than were reading uh, Coonhound Bloodlines. And he thought that it would uh, severely hurt uh, the entries at UKC events, if we drop that requirement and simply let the clubs list them in our magazine uh, for free. and um, But he finally relented, and, uh, well, as they say, the rest is history. It worked very, very well. But at any rate, let's take a look at this whole issue here of American Cooner Magazine from June of 1974. Now, as I look at the magazine, the first thing that I see in the right-hand column is a half-page ad by Dale Brandenberger of Millstadt, Illinois, his pioneer plot hound kennels. Now, I think Dale uh, 
listed or, or noted one time in the magazines that uh, he had been advertising uh, since the 40s and had not missed an issue in all that time. Manfred Craver, a redbone man from Indiana, started a column in American Cooner called Rules Corner, and he would entertain night hunt rule questions from, from readers. And then later on, Dale Brandenburger assumed that column and wrote it for many years. And that continued until, again, when I went to UKC, uh, I started a column there in Coonhound Bloodlines called the Coonhound Advisor. And the, the advisor was later, uh, after I left, published into a book and it is provided as a supplement to uh, uh, the rule book. And uh, I think it's probably available uh, maybe for a small fee. I'm not sure. But at any rate... Uh, that kind of um, took the wind out of the rules uh, corner columns, and they they eventually uh, faded away. But anyway, Dale Brandenburger, with his plots, was uh, could always be depended upon to be in uh, the issue of American Cooner. The next uh, thing that comes to mind, is, and I recall very vividly is the ad for Kohler Manufacturing Company in Marlboro, uh, Marlboro, Massachusetts. Um, Kohler was the builder of the Wheat Light, which was a lead-acid battery, uh, wet cell battery, used in the coal mining industry. And, of course, I was very familiar with these lights uh, being uh, from coal mining country in West Virginia. Uh, but anyway, the Kohler wheat light was the go-to light source for many years when guys graduated from the carbide lights. And uh, and we'll get into an ad for a carbide light a little bit later on because they were still appearing in this 1974 issue 50 year, or 49 years ago. But anyway, Kohler wheat lights, and uh, they were advertised here, the either 51 or 5200 cap light. There were two different sizes of, of heads. Uh, the 5100 was the first one, and then they came out with a slightly smaller headpiece called the 5200, and these were adjustable. And uh, uh, it, uh, you know, there was a, a industrial uh, strength, as they say, rubber uh, cord that ran from the headpiece uh, down to the battery, which was attached to a belt. And uh, many, the pair of Carhartt overalls and truck seat upholstery uh, scars were the effects of the lead or the acid leaking out of these lights onto a fabric. They would flat uh, eat up <laughs> cloth and uh, Anybody that ever hunted with a wheat light remembers that for sure. But anyway, the price of the wheat light was uh, listed at $48. So you could get yourself into a rechargeable battery light uh, for uh, less than a $50 bill back in 1974. Another ad that I found real interesting 
in this issue. And if I can get turned these old brittle pages here, because uh, this magazine is rather old, uh, 50 years old, in fact, was an ad by the Gaines Dog Food Company. Now, Gaines uh, used to be a very popular brand of dog food, and they are the 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 people that came out with Gravy Train, and you'll remember those ads where you pour the water on the feed and it created a gravy. And uh, but they in this ad uh, they are uh, comparing, um, you know, canned dog food. Uh, you know, to, I guess, to um, dry dog food. And they list that a can of Alpo at that time was 29 cents, a can of kennel ration was 17 cents, and a can of cow can was 29 cents. And the point of listing those prices for those canned dog foods was that they were um, promoting a what they called moist dog food that was uh, canned dog food without the can. It came in a package. Um, and uh, so anyway, that was the main thing they were posting. But I, I noticed here, especially today when we're talking so much about the cost of dog food and how it's just skyrocketed here within the last couple of years, they list here 50-pound bags of here are these uh, four fairly popular dog foods at the time. And they list uh, Wayne dog food, which I don't believe is made anymore, at $8.48 for a 50-pound bag. Purina dog chow at $8.03. And uh, their own gravy train at $6.72. And their gains meal at six dollars and seventy-two cents, so it's quite a quite a difference in the price. But it's just kind of fun to look back and and see because uh, you know these commercial dog foods weren't always around. Uh, you know, everybody has a story about uh, you know how their parents or grandparents cooked uh, or baked cornbread, uh, maybe with cracklings. Uh, in it uh, to feed the dogs. Okay, uh, stud dog ads were fairly prevalent in the magazine, but most of them that I found in this particular issue um, involved uh, world champions or prior world champions. And one ad here that that is a, a typically a full-page ad and I notice in this ad, no pedigree is provided, but uh, there is a long list of females that have been bred to this dog. And this is the 1973, which would be 50 years ago, ACHA world champion. He was also a Grand Knight champion in UKC. He was the ACHA uh, junior world champion. I'm not sure what that meant. Uh, an ACHA night champion, a dog called Bean Blossom Buck, and the owner was Pride Gann of Hamilton, 
or uh, Alabama. And we uh, know Mr. Gann, of course, as the owner also of a world champion, Gann's finisher. But uh, in this ad, he's advertising that uh, Bean Blossom Buck is now back home. Uh, he pride uh, got Buck from Carl Hamilton up in uh, Evansville, Indiana. And, uh, but at any rate, he has apparently bought uh, uh, or maybe brought him back home, I guess, uh, and is offering him in, at stud uh, there in Alabama. Uh, Hamilton uh, specifically. So Bean Blossom Buck, uh, a very famous uh, name in Walker history and was the world champion in 1973 as being advertised here in the, the 74 issue. Now, another ad that I found particularly interesting and a name that Coon Hunters Anywhere would, would certainly recognize. This was an ad put together or, or, or published by Joe Don House, the son of Joe House. And uh, it's advertising along with a picture of uh, champion, night champion, grand night champion, uh, House's chief, who was a very handsome walker dog, anybody that remembers Chief from back in the day. Uh, he's advertising puppies for sale out of Chief. And the price back in that day uh, always ran a little higher for male pups than for females. And uh, that, I think, has changed. In fact, most people want a female pup. Uh, I know my Good friend Randy Smith uh, recently had a litter out of his world champion Biffy Sue female and the Rosedale Frogger dog, and uh, there were four puppies born, and all four were males. And knowing Randy, who likes to hunt females, I know he had to be a little bit disappointed with that. But at any rate, here's what Joe Don House said. Uh, they were, of course, from there where the rivers meet, the Ohio and the Mississippi, in western Kentucky, the town of Clinton. And uh, he said, due to a heavy business load, my father, Joe House, has had to reduce the amount of time he spends with the hounds. Because of this, I've assumed some of the load in his dog business. I'm going to follow the pattern he has set through the years by offering pups sired by House's chief, out of some of the best-blooded females I can find. And he goes on to say, Chief will be bred to a very limited number of females this summer, and he kind of lists some of the females and so forth. So there is an icon in the Tree and Walker breed, House's Chief, uh, sired by Johnson's banjo, and, uh, you know, just uh, a really uh, well-known a walker dog. As we continue to flip through the pages here of this American Cooner, uh, we see on page 33 an ad by the Professional Coon Hunters Association, Incorporated, advertising an event in Sedalia, Missouri, called the Sedalia Open. That would be it would have been on July fourth through the sixth, nineteen seventy four. 
And, of course, this ad was posted by the late uh, president of PCA, which later became PKC, as we know, uh, our dear departed friend Jarvis Humphers. But uh, this was an interesting ad, and uh, it says that the event was open to any member of the association and any dog of hound origin. Now, Jarvis was the first one to come up with a membership in order to be able to uh, participate in the events, and that remains the case with PKC today. Um, he says the hunt will be an elimination type with cast winners advancing regardless of score, plus, minus, or circle. And that's another innovation of Jarvis because in the past it had taken plus points to advance in a hunt, especially in the UKC events, and I, and I think that pretty much remains today. Maybe have changed a little bit with some of the money hunts they have. But anyway... It says only the first 128 dogs entered will hunt, a total of 32 casts. The second night, 32 dogs in eight casts. And the third night, uh, dogs will be drawn into two casts of four dogs each and will hunt for two hours. And this is interesting. After the two hours, the cast winners will recast together for one hour to determine first and second places. And runner-up in each cast will be recast for one hour for third and fourth place. Well, that's the way they did it back in 1974. And there was a consolation hunt consisting of the runner-up in each cast the night before. There would be 32 of those dogs who finished second in each of the uh, each cast on Thursday uh, would automatically be entered in the Friday night consolation hunt and each one of the cast winners in the consolation hunt received $150 in cash. When we look at these huge purses that we're seeing nowadays, in fact, I saw the other day on Facebook, somebody mentioned that they, I think it was Bobby Overby over in Virginia, had won $100,000 in a squirrel hunt. I mean, man, it, it it's incredible. But if you look here, the first place for this uh, uh, this Sedalia Open paid $3,000 and a plaque. So it was still kind of holding on to those old trophy days as well as uh, presenting the money. The uh, entry fee for this event was $125. And if you wanted to pre-enter, you'd send $50 and pay the balance on the grounds the day of the hunt. And to join the Professional Coon Hunters Association back in that day would cost you $15. So anyway, they had a sportsmanship award of $100 each night to the hunter displaying outstanding sportsmanship. I'm not sure how that was determined, whether the hunters, uh, you know, voted on it or how, but uh, – and uh, – Judges, uh, if you judge, you came from out of town and you judged three nights, they paid you $100 each. Uh, and then if uh, you were local, you got paid $25 each night. 
And it said that all judges to be responsible for their own expenses. So basically, you had to want to want to participate. You and there was a a time, and and maybe still is to a degree, that coon hunters uh, thought it quite prestigious to be able to judge uh, one of these major events, and uh, as it should be. And uh, these remember the days when uh, champions and above in UKC. And most any major event had non-hunting judges. Uh, anyway, this hunt was held in uh, Logansport, Indiana, in August of that year. And uh, that's the predecessor to PKC, the Professional Coon Hunters Association. And uh, rest in peace, Jarvis. You, you're a great innovator and really... I did some good things for the coon hunting world. All right, well, there's an ad in this uh, publication for Autumn Oaks. And uh, it's interesting, and back in those days, they simply called it Autumn Oak. There was no S. And this one was for the 15th annual. So the event started in 1960. So we know that, uh, uh, you know, 1973 would be uh, 15 years, or 74, excuse me, would be 15 years. Uh, back in those days, the event was held in Greencastle, Indiana. The Deer Creek Coon Hunters Club was the host year after year. I think that uh, uh, Autumn Oaks had about a 20-year run there. And uh, there at the fairgrounds, and the last time I was there was when the UKC World Championship was held in uh, 2016, uh, I believe. Now, I may have gone back there just to shoot some photos and whatnot, but uh, anyway, in 2016, I was there. I judged the World Championship show for UKC, and that was the year that I... I first uh, met and became closely acquainted with uh, Randy Smith and Tom Strang, Rick Strouser, those guys, as they won the UKC World Hunt there in Greencastle. But at any rate, uh, it's interesting here. The entry fee for Autumn Oaks was 10 bucks, and uh, uh, checks could be uh, sent payable to Autumn Oak Incorporated. Uh, they gave uh, trophies, of course. Uh, the rules were basically non-hunting judges. It was a one-night hunt runoff in two nights, as it still is. The uh, registered dogs, uh, they might run 300 Friday night and another 300 on a Saturday, but the scores are all totaled uh, together and it's as if they ran them all on the same night. Um and they list that the purpose of that is to accommodate more hunters and dogs and uh, that that gives them better use of their judges and guides and better hunting. All good points because uh, it's kind of, it'd be kind of hard to find uh, territory to hunt 600 dogs in one night. Uh, anyway, that is Autumn Oaks, the 15th annual and it was held that year as it always is on labor day weekend in uh, 1974 
Another stud dog ad that come up, came, comes up in this issue is an ad for a dog called Rob's Danny Boy. Now, Danny Boy was owned by Roy Birchell of Decatur, Alabama. Alabama seemed to be a hotbed for these world champions back in the day with Pride Gann having Bean Blossom Buck and Gann's finisher, and here's Roy Birchell with, uh, with Rob's Danny Boy. Um, Danny Boy was the 1971 world champion. Uh, he was a Grand Knight champion in UKC and an ACHA uh, a world champion, of course. Um, they also list him as, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure if they're trying to say that he was a UKC world champion. That's a good point to make right here. Back in the day, before the UKC World Championship began in 1978, the Autumn Oak uh, was called the UKC World Championship. And the dog, the overall winner at Autumn Oaks, was called the World Champion, although uh, they actually didn't come out with an official title that went on the papers and so forth until 1978 when the first one was held um, in Beaver Dam, Ohio. Uh, Loomis's Tom was the first uh, UKC world champion. But anyway, Rob's Danny Boy, um, open-spotted walker dog, tan-headed, kind of like tan-headed dog, clean, no ticks. I'd say um, a medium-sized hound. Uh, and it would cost you a $100 bill if you brought your female in to uh, Danny Boy. And if you shipped her in, it would cost you an extra $25. So um, Roy Birchall, he was a Kentucky Fried Chicken guy uh, from Decatur, Alabama. Uh, Vinyl Inslee was also associated with Roy um, from Lewisburg, Tennessee, and very uh, uh, popular name in ACHA coon hunting back in the day. Now, another ad here that I found real interesting in this magazine was that of the uh, Miller Brothers School for Treehounds. And uh, these guys uh, out in Springdale, Arkansas, were kind of the forerunners of these puppy training pens and so forth. And then this particular ad, they're talking about three stud dogs uh, that they've had there at the training facility, and and they really uh, found them to be, uh, you know, a cut above the average in dogs. And one of them was a drum dog, a red tick, owned by Bert Oney up in Greenwich, Ohio, the other was a walker dog named Bali on by Kenneth Dennis of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And then uh, there's a blue tick here owned by Mitchell Hicks of Willard, Ohio, that, uh, you know, uh, they uh, kind of gave him a really high rating. He said, I would class Jim about as good as a hound can get. Uh, that's quite a, quite an endorsement. So Miller Brothers School for Treehounds was advertising back there in 1974. Um, 
The next ad that it was so typical of ads back in that day was uh, an ad, if I can find it here, um, and it's escaping me. Here it is. Uh, there were a lot of dogs for sale in the magazines back in those, in that day. And one of the guys that was continually in Cooner, and I believe in Full Cry as well, was a guy named Art Lohman from Cesar, Illinois. He advertised as Illinois' better Cooners. The interesting thing about Art Lohman was the word was back in the day, back uh, in about this time. You see, this was a 1974 magazine, 73 was the year that I came home from the Air Force. And, of course, it had been on a sabbatical for three years of no coon hunting. And, man, I jumped in with both feet, so I was all about it. And we used to have a gathering spot there in West Virginia at a used car dealership with a local coon hunter, Cliff Talbert. All the coon hunters would gather in at, at lunchtime, those that were working and, I guess, the loafers too. And we'd talk dogs and talk news and all this. And uh, the news was that this Art Loman had uh, been charged, I guess, with mail fraud. Uh, I can't say that. It's allegedly uh, uh, possible. Um, I don't know any of the facts or whatever, but I do know that he was very, very popular as a uh, as a seller of coon dogs back in the day. And he has uh, eight dogs advertised here in a half-page ad. Plus he has uh, two good pup trainers, seven, eight years old, that are straight on coon and good solid tree dogs for $85 each. And they're each uh, sold on a 15-day trial. Now that was very common back in this day to buy a dog on trial. The only hook in that that uh, provision was that you were going to be responsible for getting that dog back to Mr. Loman or whoever the seller was, uh, you know, if you weren't satisfied. Um, he also had a couple beagles. He wanted 140 for the pair, so they must have been pretty good rabbit dogs back in that day. Um and, and at the end, he says, small dealers who want to handle a few dogs, I can sell you dogs that can make you money. So apparently there was some money to be made in the coon dog market back then. But looking down the uh, list here, he has a black and tan male, four years old, for $500. A registered four-year-old red bone for $450. A registered black and tan female for 450 a semi-silent male who's four years old and three-fourths hound and one-fourth cur. A good hunter. He can move a track fast. He's a number one solid tree dog. He is straight on coon, $400. And then the prices go down, $350, $300, And uh, here's one. This is interesting. Number eight, a walker coon and cat dog who's four years old. He's a good hunter. Knows how to trail a cat and jump it and can push one when he jumps. He runs hard and trees solid and is fox, deer, and trash proof. $135 on trial. 
So, fellas, if you could get on the time machine and go back a few uh, years, you could see that you could get in the coon hunting business for a lot less money than it takes today. Now, I don't uh, definitely don't uh, recommend uh, you doing that. <laughs> I'm sure some of those dogs, it would be like buying a dog off the dog lot at the Grand American. You might get a good one, and, but it's a pretty good chance you won't. Another ad here, a half-page uh, display ad by a good friend of mine and also all coon hunters who knew him and also his son, Mark. This was the Sunburst Seal Beam Coon Light ad by Jim Gatton of uh, Belleville, Ohio. Now, Jim was uh, an innovator. He came along with uh, this sunburst with a seal beam head. Uh, basically, the light was a motorcycle battery type enclosed in a metal case uh, that was designed to be worn with a strap over your shoulder. It had a, a spotlight, a seal beam spotlight with a with a flexible cord, and uh, it was the forerunner of the Sunburst Eagle and Eagle II, um, which Jim would advertise as the Cadillac of coon hunting lights. But Jim Gatton's one of the nicest fellows I ever met in the sport of coon hunting. And those that did business with him, you always remember whatever you bought from Jim, he always sent a little metal cross with it. And it was your compass for your journey of life. And I can't think of Jim without getting a little choked up because he was just such a great guy. Enjoyed many, many conversations with him over the years. And uh, he built a mighty fine product. In fact, the the uh, Sunburst Eagle, Eagle Two were really considered uh, the top of the line in coon hunting lights for a good good period of time. Uh, okay, well, there's another ad from a coon hunter that was a popular guy. And uh, he operated a supply house out of his uh, his local, uh, his locality, I guess I'm trying to say, in Lees Creek, Ohio. And that was Daryl Hunter. Uh, Daryl advertised um dog supplies for many years. And what I saw or found interesting here about Daryl's ad was uh, that he still listed carbide lights for sale. And, of course, as you know, this is still the uh, the, the, the time when um, the wheat light has come along. It's uh, probably a little bit before or about the time that Dane Phillips came out with the Coon Hunter's Favorite. Uh, the sealed uh, battery, uh, six-volt battery. Uh, but at any rate, uh, you could buy a headlight or a cap light, carbide light, the kind I learned to hunt on. Had a little metal clip that uh, clipped onto a special hat that you had to buy uh, with, uh, you know, uh, to accommodate the light. But anyway, it was eight. Dollars and twenty-five cents would get you a brand new uh, carbide light, 
and uh, they had the eight-hour style, and that's the kind my dad used. It was really designed with a with a bail on it and a hook, uh, so you could carry it like a lantern and and hook it over a limb of a tree or whatever. My dad, being a pipe fitter and and used to um, working with metals and all this, he um, made a fitting for his carbine light that he uh, attached uh, a a length of surgical tubing and ran that up his back to the headpiece uh, and uh, just like kind of like a belt light, but it was a carbine light, and I still have that. It's one of my prized possessions from my dad, and I'm sure it's still operable, although I haven't put a charge of carbine light, uh, light carbide in it for several years anyway there's all kinds of things in here coon trail scent for a dollar breaking scents for three dollars you can get uh, uh, there's a a coon saver uh, a rope bag people used to put a coon in a rope bag and uh, the dogs couldn't get a hold of the coon but they could see him and smell him and all and you could get one of those for Twelve ninety-five. Anyway, remedies of all kinds. Uh, dog cap, Pfizer log, uh, dog caps for round hook and tapeworms for a dollar fifty uh, for a card of four, and uh, blue lotion antiseptic for cuts a dollar. Uh, flea and tick powder ninety-nine cents, and um, you could also uh, get. Uh, uh, a combiotic penicillin uh, for 60 cents a dose. So anyway, those were the days back in 1974 where you could uh, practice uh, veterinary medicine on your own for not much money. All righty. Um, th- the... Uh, Next ad is really not an ad, the next article, a feature article that I found uh, pretty interesting as we're winding down this review of this 1974 uh, uh, American Cooner magazine is the results of the Leafy Oak Coon Chase. Now, Leafy Oak was the predecessor of Automo's. And uh, I've spoken about it before, uh, how Lester Nance, who we accredit with naming the tree and walker breed and pursuing UKC to get them to register them as such, uh, held the first Coonhound Bench Show at Leafy Oak. I don't have the year on that, but uh, it's in the history of some of the articles I've written over the years. But at any rate... um, this was the results of the very first leafy oak that was ever held. Uh, it uh, was in Kenton, Ohio, of course, where the Kenton National was held for many years. And many of my listeners will remember going to Kenton and the field trials and the water races and the huge gathering of people. And little by little, Kenton turned into a big flea market. But it was operated by the late Eddie Ross, who is also noted for establishing the mountain music coon hunts. He was a, a blue ticker, 
and uh, had some uh, popular uh, blue tick stud dogs. But anyway, Labor Day at Kenton, Ohio, was a gala day for coon hunters who congregated there to witness the contesting of the first annual Leafy Oak Stake. 182 hounds were entered, representing the cream of coon hounds from 14 different states. Without a doubt, a finer or classier group of dogs were never before assembled in one place. Every hound was worthy of the name and carried the implicit faith of his master, some of whom had traveled several days to be at the appointed place on time. And they go on and they list the leaders and all that. And ultimately it got down. They had a little bit of a problem because they had more dogs than they had anticipated. So he ended up having to... uh, Well, I'll read it here. By the time the elimination trials had been run off, the day was fast nearing its close, and the owners of the winning dogs were unanimous in deciding that they would much prefer that the semifinals and grand final be run off next day. The announcement of this decision resulted in quite a lot of unpleasantness, which was regretted by everyone and for which no one can be held directly responsible. It was simply the result of the late start, oppressive heat, and other unfortunate circumstances which were apparently unavoidable. However, the management announced that no admission would be charged the next day and refunds in full were made to owners of the dogs in the heats where no dogs qualified. The three heats of the semifinals were won by Gold Coin, owned by Doc Beatty of Warren, Ohio, Black Bell, also owned by Beatty, and Little Sheik, owned by I.B. Baker of Norwich, Ohio. In the grand final, Little Sheik was proclaimed the winner, Gold Coin second, and Black Bell third. Now, Little Sheik was a red bone. And in the early days of coonhound events, even the very first night hunt uh, or night champion uh, in UKC was a red bone. The red bones were very successful back in that day. But anyway, Little Sheik uh, with I.B. Baker, uh, along with their uh, silver, it looks to be a silver uh, cup that stands, I'm going to say, about 18 inches or 20 inches tall, Mr. Baker in a in a sport coat with a tie, as was the custom back in the day, is shown with this article. Now, I found it interesting uh, as kind of an addendum to that. Uh, at the back of American Cooner, uh, the editor always had uh, an editorial. And at this time, the owner of American Cooner, and for many years, was uh, uh, George Slankard of Cesar, Illinois. And Terry Walker, the current owner, bought American Cooner from George. Uh, but anyway, in um, uh, this account of this event back in 1927, and I'm not sure if this came exactly from uh, George or not. Uh, but anyway, he talks about 
how things were uh, back in that day. But he refers back to this uh, leafy oak, and he says, Some 20 years ago, we spent many weekends during the year traveling to coon dog events, and many of the events were field trials. One of the most impressive gentlemen we ever met during those many years was Mr. Baker. Remember this I, B. Baker. If there was ever a man who enjoyed running field trial dogs, it was the gentleman from Norwalk, Ohio. We were at the Transippi back in the early 50s over our 4th of July weekend. We were driving a mostly used Chevrolet that we had earned as a school teacher. The temperature was near 100. Chiggers were giving everyone a fit, and the man enjoying the whole trial the most was I.B. Baker. We never will forget his pale green Cadillac with matching dog trailer. Man, that was plush transportation for both man and dog. Anyway, when we came across the article in some old Hunter Trader Trapper magazine, we thought you might be interested in some history of the Coonhound world. And so this story about this leafy oak in 1927 was uh, taken from the old Hunter Trader Trapper magazine. And I have uh, three volumes here uh, of, of books, of stories that I have used uh, or referred to in some of my writings uh, from the old Hunter Trader Trapper magazine. Okay, in closing out this uh, trip down memory lane, I find an ad here, a full-page ad uh, for Blue Tick Coonhounds. Now, remember, this is 1974 by Kelly Bragg of Brooks, West Virginia. Many coon hunters will remember Kelly Bragg. And Kelly was quite the interesting fellow. He was a circus performer, a trapeze artist, and he would work through the summer, travel with the circus. In the wintertime, he would come back to his home in Brooks, West Virginia, which is on New River, oh, as the crow flies, probably 15, 20 miles from where I lived in Beckley. Uh, his uh, father's name was Lon, L-O-N. And uh, Kelly would come home to the mountains of West Virginia and coon hunt. And uh, listeners that uh, were involved in the sport back in that day will remember Kelly's dogs, uh, West Virginia Blue. He had several different versions of Blue over the years, kind of like our our good friend Dave Dean with his hammer dogs. And uh, anyway... I uh, spent many, many enjoyable hours talking dogs with Kelly back in the day. Quite the colorful guy, very flamboyant. Um, uh, he he was just uh, cut from a different cloth. And I can remember his ads, uh, you know, talking about the dog staying treed for un 
unbelievable periods of time, and I often kind of rolled my eyes or shook my head. But uh, here's some Kelly Bragg uh, writing about his stud dog, uh, West Virginia Blue Four. Every night I hunt Blue Four, I like him better, whether I have any luck or not, for I know he has given me all he has got. Blue Four is the talk of the coon hunters here in southern West Virginia who have hunted with him or pups he has sired. Blue Four is siring pups that are treating their own coon at six to eight months old, and some have treated five months old. I don't mean a pop-up coon. I mean trail, run, tree, alone, and hold the tree. You boys that plan to breed to Blue Four should go hunting with Jim Ward's young dog out of this cross. He treated his first coon at five months old, and on and on he goes about the different ones. But I always remember Kelly Bragg. Blue tick fanciers will remember the Bragg bred dogs. And uh, so with that, uh, I'm going to conclude this podcast and review of this 1974 uh, issue of American Cooner Magazine. Uh, you know, of course, I have so many memories from that period of time, uh, the 70s up until 1983, when I went to work full-time at UKC, were uh, were a time when I was actively involved in showing and hunting my own dogs, going to the coon hunts up and down the Ohio Valley and over into Western Virginia and, and uh, to plot days annually and so forth. So it was an exciting time for me, a time I'll never forget, and largely because I, I uh, enjoyed that whole period of time with my dad. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this uh, kind of crazy podcast today with the uh, Audible book section there to start and with the review of this old magazine. These printed magazines are our history for our sport. And uh, they really are enjoyable for guys like me to go back and browse through. And if you have some, just when you got time, sit down, kick back, pour a cup of coffee, and just browse through uh, and take yourself a little trip through the golden years of Coon Honey. Thanks for listening, folks. If anyone asks you where Steve Fielder is, tell him he's in the pages of an old Coonhound magazine. He's gone to the dogs. Thank you.